Well, today we're wrapping up uh, this series that we've entitled Unusual, where we've been contrasting the life of someone who is a fully devoted follower of Christ and how unusual that looks compared to the normal that we see in the world and even in the Bible Belt and how dysfunctional normal really has become and, and how much we're called to step out of that and live an unusual type of life. And today we're going to talk about an unusual way of handling money. Yes, we're going to talk about money. And I realize that for some people that just immediately causes discomfort. And a lot of that, I, I truly believe, springs from the fact that um, one of the most successful lies of the devil is that he has spoken in so many different ways into people's minds saying, well, that's all they're really interested in at church is your money. Well, it is a lie from the devil, and if you've been around Freedom Church for very long, then you really should know that that's a lie, certainly around here, because we don't spend a great deal of time talking about money, and, and quite honestly, I have very little interest in how much money you've got in the bank or trying to get what you have in your possession in the church's account. That is not at all the motive behind what I'm going to be sharing with you today. What I'm going to share with you today, we're going to have some fun with and I'm going to just talk to you just as directly as I would to my own family. And it's not because I'm trying to, you know, get in your face or talk down to anybody. I'm talking to you out of, you know, a life of having struggled and had to, having had to learn and still learning lessons the hard way. And just knowing that what we're talking about today really has the power to set us free. And I'm not going to pull any punches with you. We're going to just talk really directly about money from start to finish. And part of the reason that I don't have any shyness or hesitation in addressing this is because of how directly Jesus talked about money. Jesus, if you just go through and count words and conversations in the Gospels, some would say that this was the, most, the, the second most talked about subject on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. Money, wealth, possessions. And so we dare not shrink back from talking about something that Jesus addressed so openly. So I want to begin today with a question. How many of you, by a show of hands, would say, I have done some things in my life that are really stupid and I regret them? How many of you? Yeah, there we go. Now let's get a little more specific on that. How many of you would say, financially, that's true? I have made some stupid financial decisions. And for those of you who didn't raise your hands, how many of you have had a long-term problem with lying in church? <laughs> Because everybody should have their hand up. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you raise your hand that you've made some stupid financial decisions, you know what that makes you. That makes you over the age of 12. I mean, because everybody who's an adult, we've made poor financial decisions, and we, it winds up costing us a lot of money. And so what we're going to be talking about today are five biblical principles that if we'll put them into practice over the long haul, they will make such a drastic difference in our lives. Now, the decisions that we make that don't line up with these principles that wind up costing us a lot of money, Dave Ramsey refers to those choices as stupid tax. That's a pretty good term for it. And I don't know about you, but I've paid a lot of stupid tax in my life. Money that I have lost or wasted because I made bad choices. And I'm at the place, I don't want to pay any more stupid tax. And so I really have been making, over the last couple of years, some major adjustments in my life and my spending and saving and, and planning. And today we're going to talk about some biblical plans for how we do this, how we move from normal to something much, much better than normal. And I would remind you that the basic principle of this series is 
if you want what normal people have, just do what normal people do. But if you want what few people have, you're going to have to do what few people are willing to do. What we'll talk about today, few people are willing to do. Because it doesn't come naturally, and it doesn't create a quick fix. But I want to remind you when it comes to finances, what normal people do. Normal people live paycheck to paycheck. The Wall Street Journal says 70% of Americans live one paycheck to the next. They don't have a reserve. They don't have margin. They're just paycheck to paycheck. That's normal. Normal is broke. You may say, well, I'm paycheck to paycheck, but I'm not broke. Nobody's repossessing my car, taking my house away from me. If there's no margin, if you're spending everything that you make, you're living broke. You're just functionally broke. Normal is a mess financially. We know that in America, 52% of marriages end in divorce. Most of those in the early years, and of those that end within the first seven years, 90% of those people who divorce say finances were a huge part of the decision to end the marriage. That's normal. Normal is either finances having a major part in breaking up a marriage or continually stressing a marriage. And there are a lot of folks in the room who, who could attest to that and go, yeah, that's, that is the real thing. Because you know what that looks like, don't you? You know, you're in a bind financially, and you feel uptight about it, and the worse it gets, the more you know it's your spouse's fault. Because it's all the money that they're spending. You know, your budget would be balanced, wouldn't it, if your spouse didn't spend any money? <laughs> I mean, you figured that out, hadn't you? And it would be. If your spouse spent no money, your bu budget would be balanced. And so it's like somewhere in our minds we're going... The money that I spent was wise, you know, it was wise choices, good stuff. If my spouse would just never spend money, we'd be okay. And so it creates all this friction and winds up leading us to really bad places. Well, I want to remind you that the situations that we find ourselves in financially are not primarily a result of what's going on in the economy. It's the result of learned behaviors. It's not because you have a stingy boss. It's not because of the recession that started in 2008. Most of us are in the places that we are financially because of repeated learned behaviors. If you're in a good position, it's because of good behaviors that you've learned. And if you're in a bad position, it's because of bad behaviors that have been repeated again and again. And the thing that I really hate about what I'm talking about today is how much of it applies to me and how much of what I'm sharing today, I'm sharing from a position of having done the wrong stuff and having had to recover from and learn to operate a different way by biblical principles. And I want so badly to be like the normal part of the world and be able to blame somebody else for the problems that I've made, bad choices that I've made along the way. But I have consistently discovered this that the problem in my life, the problems in the past for me financially, they haven't been because of inflation or the interest rate or the housing market. It hasn't been any of those things. My problem has always been one thing. It's that fool that I have to shave with every morning that I look at in the mirror. That joker that I have to look at every day, every time that I look in the mirror. If I could get him to straighten up, I'd be skinny and rich. If he would just cooperate... And the problem is, it's been hard to reform his behavior. And friends, this is, the, this is the deal. God is going to speak very directly into our lives about finances. Because they're so tied to our hearts. I mean, Jesus said it this plainly. Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
There's apparently a nerve that runs from my back pocket to my heart. Because how I spend my money, what I do with money, is so tied to my heart. And so God's going to use the whole thing of money and priorities that are reflected by our finances to really show us our hearts and, and help us to change who we are and have to deal with who we are. One of the things that's really interesting to note is people who have been in a financial bad position long term and who actually apply the five principles that we're going to talk about today and who really make that transformation. And, it, and a lot of people are doing this. I mean, people who are you know, doing Financial Peace University and Crown and listening to Dave Ramsey and others who are just taking these biblical principles and putting them out there in really digestible ways. It's amazing how many of the people who are following these principles and over a span of some years are moving to a much stronger position financially. There's an amazing correlation between the people who are doing that and getting better off financially with people who are also, at the same time, they're losing lots of weight, and so many of them are seeing their marriages and key relationships getting so much healthier. Now, that's curious. Why would getting to a better position financially correlate to things like weight loss and having healthier marriages? Well, I can tell you the obvious answer to that. These are heart issues. Addressing how I spend my money and getting to the point of realizing it's not my money. These are God's resources. And there's an accountability. And I can't just say, this is my life, this is my time, this is my money. To actually be thoughtful and accountable and disciplined about those things, it's not just going to affect how I handle money. It's going to affect how I handle what I eat and how I exercise and how I handle time and it's going to impact relationships and health and financial health. So these are important principles. I do believe that financial freedom is 80% learned behavior and 20% knowledge and we'll take care of enough of the 20% knowledge today, quite honestly. The basic truths that we're going to talk about today this isn't going to be rocket science, but if you know these truths, that's enough knowledge that if you'll put those into practice over time, it will radically transform your life financially and in a lot of other ways. But we can't be normal people who run around screaming that if we just get the right president elected, if we just get the right Congress in there, they could straighten things out and the economy would be fixed and I'd be so much better off financially. That's the sing-song of the loser, by the way. Don't you know that's the truth? And unfortunately, we've seen the pendulum swing to the point where we used to be a nation of people who felt like it was our responsibility to take care of ourselves, to have a plan, to work a plan. You be responsible for taking care of yourself. And we've gotten to the point where we've crossed the 50% line where more than half of America has its hands out and we're expecting the government to bail us out and to take care of us. And it's going to be hard to ever elect a fiscally responsible president or Congress when we're thinking that it's up to the president and the Congress to fix our personal finances. It ain't their job to fix my budget. The decisions that they make do matter. And it matters who we elect. But when people are looking for the government to fix their personal finances, that's an indictment on how irresponsible we've become. It's our job to take care of being responsible with our own finances. So 
today. Five principles that yield unusual results when it comes to finances. Number one, create a written game plan. Make a budget. And look, I get it. On that one point, probably half the room, half the people listening online go, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. I hate that. I just, I know I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you an easy out on this one. If you won't do this, you might as well tear up the outline and turn me off for the rest of the message. This is a, a must. This is a, the most fundamental thing in getting on track financially is there has to be a plan. There have to be guidelines. Jesus said <clears throat> in Luke 14, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? He's talking about creating a budget for that. For if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone will see and will ridicule you. The point being, it is ridiculous that you would undertake a project and not have a, a budget in place to make sure that income is going to match up to expenses and that this thing's going to work and it would be ridiculous to do otherwise. And here's the thing that's so wacky is we'll see that in a business setting and go, well, of course. Of course, almost every successful business in America operates with a budget where they have to estimate expenses for the year. They have to estimate what their income is going to be and from that they're going to derive what their profits are going to be. Of course, every business has to do this for the year and operate around quarterly projections and has to go back and evaluate how that measured up to the plan. Of course, that's what successful businesses do. Why on earth would we not apply that in our personal lives? I mean, think of it this way. If you're the president of You Incorporated, and you also happen to be the manager of the local branch of You Incorporated, as the owner of the company, if you evaluated how you're doing as the manager of your franchise of You Incorporated, would you need to fire you? If, as the owner, you looked in and said, okay, Tom, let's see how you're doing in managing the resources that have been put in your hands. What kind of plan do you have? How well are you following that plan? Let's evaluate the job that you're doing. If you do that to yourself, would you have to go, ooh, if that were somebody else, I'd fire them. If somebody else were doing the kind of job with the money that you manage, would you go, pfft? Toss them out and get somebody more responsible in there. It's kind of a goofy way of thinking about it, but it really does make you stop and think, doesn't it? To go, ugh, am I really doing the kind of job that I'd be okay with somebody else doing if they were managing this money that I want to say is my money that's ultimately God's resources? It takes a financial plan in order to hit a target. Profitable companies rely on this, and if we're going to hit the target, we've got to have a plan. You know, if you, if you aim at nothing, they say you'll hit the target every time. Now, some people will say, whether they say it out loud or not, some right now are thinking, look, I've been getting by fine without a budget. I don't have a budget now, and nobody's taking my car, nobody's taking my house, so I'm doing okay without a budget. And, and some people, it's like, you know, I make enough that I don't need a budget at a personal level. You know what? If your response is that you make enough that you don't need a budget, what that most likely means is you're wasting more money than the average person because you make enough 
that you don't have to monitor this. You don't have to have a spending plan. You don't have to have any accountability where you go back and look back to see if your spending lined up with the plan. That's a good indication, man, I really do need to put this on paper and work from a plan. Proverbs 29:18 says, "Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained." Boy, that that applies in the area of finances as much as anything. Where there's no financial vision, and by the way, that's what a budget is. A budget is the vision to look ahead and plan the spending of money that you don't have in your hand yet, that you don't have in your account yet. That's financial vision. Where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained. Why are they unrestrained? Because there's nothing to hold them back. You go in whatever store you're in, something looks good, and it's like, if there's money in the account, there's nothing to restrain me. There's nothing to stop me. I like it. I want it. I've got some money in the account. I can have it. I'm unrestrained. What does a budget do? A budget gives me a guideline to evaluate. Is this part of the plan? Is this a wise use of this resource? You know, what am I going to have to give up that I, that I had prioritized, that I said that I needed in order to have this thing that I didn't plan on? Ooh, well, that's not always fun, is it? No, not in the moment. It's not. It's unusually challenging. And I just, I want you to see this for what it is. It's not just a guideline. This becomes, hear me on this, this becomes one of the most spiritual documents that you'll ever make. Do you believe that? I do. Because it ain't your money. And it's not my money. All that I have comes from the hand of God and it belongs to God. And Jesus made this clear again and again. I am a steward of the resources that God puts in my hands. Jesus gave so many teachings. He had so many parables where there were specific examples about the handling of money. It's funny how we'll take the parable of the talents and we'll actually think of that in terms of a talent. This was a measure of money. It's given to three different servants. And the whole thing is about how well they manage the money that had been put in their hands. The master is a, a type of, that's a picture of who God is. And they're evaluated based on how they handled financial resources. And Jesus goes on to say in one of those teachings that this becomes the standard of measure for the level of responsibility that you're going to be given in heaven by how you managed responsibilities that you had here on earth. This is a big deal. This is a very spiritual decision. You ought not to make a budget without really prayerfully considering, God, I want to every day... I want to manage what you've given me in a way that would honor you and would reflect your character. And you'll see as we finish the message, ultimately, a better picture of what this is going to look like. You're going to have to hang with me because it, if you only listen to the first part of the message, you're going to think, oh, this is just a prosperity message that's about us having more and more wealth and living more luxurious lives. No, it is not. But along the way, to have the kind of impact that God wants us to have and enjoy some financial freedom, we're going to engage in some principles that are going to create more wealth along the way. Now, the great challenge in what we're talking about today for many people is one simple fact. A bunch of you are married, and that makes this ten times harder, doesn't it? And here's the real rub. There are two kinds of people listening to the message today. I don't know a better term for the first group, so take this lovingly. I belong to the first group. We are the nerds. We are the ones who are going, yeah, that's right. I am so glad my spouse is here to 
hear what the preacher's saying. I've been saying all along we needed a budget. Now we're going home. I'm getting out QuickBooks. We are going to have a budget. And it's going to be, I'll blame it on the preacher. We are the nerds. And then there's the other group. And they are the free spirits. And God bless you, most of you married nerds. It's funny how that works out. Now, you can use whatever terms you want to, but in most every marriage, somebody's the gas, somebody's the brakes. Somebody is loving spending the money, and somebody's over there trying to stomp the brakes, going, you know, slow down. We don't need to be spending that. Somebody's wanting to make a budget, and somebody's going, I am not going to sit here and do this. They get mad every time you try. This is a part of the great challenge. You see that reflected in a lot of different things. Within a marriage, one of you is on time all the time. And in fact, you're five or ten minutes early for everything, and the other one might as well not own a watch because you don't ever show up on time for anything. And these two people always marry one another. Do I hear an amen? Or an oh me or something? That's just how it works out most of the time. And so here's the real rub. You've got to do this together. If you're married, you've got to do this together. And ooh, that's hard. Unusually hard. Because you're so different. One of you is probably going to enjoy this process, and one of you is going to enjoy it about like a barium enema. It's just not going to be fun. And because it's not fun for the other one, it's not going to be fun for either one of you. But you know what? One of the most significant things that the Spirit of God is teaching you and working in your life is to learn to work together in unity. One of you who's punctual all the time, one of you who's late all the time, one of you who's a free spirit, one of you who's structured about everything, one of you who loves to be budgeted and accountable for everything, and one of you who just wants to be, hey, let's take it as it comes, we'll just trust God, we'll just give freely wherever we have the opportunity. And God pairs two people like that together, and He says, I want to shape your heart, and I'm going to let money be a part of that, I'm going to let your spouse be a part of that, And I'm going to make you rub up against each other and actually issues like money and budgets. I'm going to use these as opportunities for you to do the unusually hard thing of working together in unity. And you're going to rub rough edges off of one another. And you're going to learn strengths from each other that are going to fill in your weaknesses as you work together on this. It's challenging. But remember... You've got to do what few people do to enjoy what few people experience. Normal people won't do this. That's why most couples that I ever counsel, they don't have budgets. can't tell you how many people over the years I've counseled with that financial difficulties were a, a, pay, a major part of the equation. And I don't, I mean, I hardly ever encounter people who are struggling financially who have a budget. Got to be willing to sit down and work at this. Spending your money on paper before you have it, that is unusual. But unusual behavior will yield unusual results. And there's one little side benefit that I'll mention before I move on to the next point. If you'll do this, as miserable as that might sound to you, it actually gives a great sense of empowerment to do it when it just always feels like there's extra month left at the end of the check instead of extra money at the end of the month. If you'll do it, it gives you a tremendous sense of taking control of what has been out of control, and it will feel like you just got a raise. It really will. Because for most of us, we're like a bucket that's got several holes in it, that's leaking in several places, and to actually put together a sound budget and to begin to live by it, it plugs 
a number of the holes in the bucket. And suddenly it's like, wow, we've got extra money we don't normally have. You sure do. Because now you don't spend in an unrestrained fashion and it feels like you've got to raise. There's more money now. Number two, learn to act your wage. This means to learn to live on less than what you make. A lot of times I think we tend to look at our lives and think that life, you know, the financial picture, it's like a snapshot. You know, this is just where I am financially, and so this is where I imagine being down the line. And life is never static. Relationships are never static. Financial pictures are not static. It's fluctuating. And this is kind of a good news, bad news deal all in one story here, but you may be at the best place you've ever been financially, and it just it's like, okay, take a picture. Things are so strong financially, no, nothing shaky about this. Well, if that's where you are, rest assured of this, there will be days ahead that will be worse than where you are right now. But on the other end of that, you may be in the worst place you've ever been financially. You're struggling, you're broke, you, it just feels like you're never going to find your way out. And the good news for you is, there will be better days ahead for you. The bottom line is, it's up and down. Paul said in Philippians, you know, I have experienced great want, great difficulty. I've experienced great abundance, and I've learned the secret of being content in both of those circumstances. That's a picture of life. You're going to have times where there's lots. You're going to have times when there's not a lot. So here's what you better learn to do now. You better learn now, learn how to spend less than what you make. Most Americans do not do this. Most people will spend all of what they make and... A lot of times a little bit more through credit. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Is that really in the Bible? Let's read that one together. The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. How did that get there? Now, I grew up in church. And I thought the message of the church was, if you really love Jesus and you're a faithful Christian, you pretty much have to live in a cave and give all the money that you have to missions, right? Isn't that what godly people do? And Proverbs says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but the fool over here is spending everything he gets. Can I just clarify for you? The word fool there is not like the fun version of fool, like, hey, what a fool. No, this is, this is not that. This is a term you don't ever want applied to your life. And according to the Word of God, what would define you as a fool here? Not a rhetorical question. What makes you a fool? That's all it takes to be a fool? Just spend everything you earn? Oh, you know what I hate about that? That means most of my adult life I've been a fool by the Word of God and felt okay the whole time I was being a fool. It's like, well, I mean, I'm not. I'm not going out hurting people. I'm not spending money on booze and partying and drugs. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. I just spend what I make. And by the way, what we make does change a lot over time, doesn't it? I mean, I, I look back and in, in the span of 20 years, my income increased in the same thing in ministry. It increased like five or six fold in that span of time. And you know what never changed in all of that time? The amount of margin that I had. I just lived a life that matched whatever I made. And that's what most people do. 
And I didn't feel like I was doing anything bad with that. And you know what the Word of God says about that life? It says, I lived as a fool. Some of you can attest to that. You, that you'd say, look back and I, I've lived as a fool a lot of my life. That has changed in my life. And I am determined to never live that way again where I just spend everything that I make. One thing that's difficult about what we're talking about today is if you're going to put these principles into practice, you will see most of your peers enjoying things that you don't enjoy right now. If you're the normal American, if you've lived a normal American life, and you begin to practice all five of the principles that we'll talk about today, you will watch your friends have bigger houses than you have, drive nicer cars, take bigger vacations, and have nicer toys than what you have. They will. And you're going to have to be okay with saying, I choose for some very good reasons not to have the toys and the houses and the, the kinds of vehicles that my peers have. And oh, by the way, here's another little thing that comes. You know, that, that, that bothers us, right? Wouldn't you agree that at some level, for most of us, that stings a bit. Especially like when you're raising kids. And all of your kids' peers, they're driving nicer cars and you're showing up in something that's not so nice. And, you know, they've got nicer houses. That, that can bug us. But I'll tell you how this thing works in reverse, too. When you really begin to live out the principles that we're talking about today, and it's going to show up, there are going to be people around you who don't like that and who will not cheer for you. And if anything, they'll discourage this kind of lifestyle where you're living really responsibly, where you're living on less and you're willing to make sacrifices. And there will be people who will say to you, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, just, you know, keep on eating out. You deserve to have a new vehicle. You, go ahead. You know what that's the equivalent of? Somebody who's been overweight, really overweight for years and years, and they finally make the changes. They start eating right, they start exercising, they start doing the things to get healthy, and they really lose a lot of weight. And you know who doesn't like that? Fat people. Seriously? Uh, come on, isn't that the truth? You know who hates to see people lose weight? Overweight people. It does not make them feel good at all. You know what they want to say? Oh, just go ahead and have that donut. Just go ahead and join me. Just stay like I am. People who live normal financial lives where we leverage all kinds of credit, all kinds of debt in order to live a lifestyle that is a facade. We don't cheer for people who choose to live otherwise, who say, I ain't going to buy it if I can't pay cash for it. That means I'm going to go without a lot of things. That means I'm not going to go out to eat every time everybody else does. It means I'm going to drive a vehicle way beyond the amount of time other people would drive a vehicle. I'm not going to have some things that I could have because there's better stuff I can do with that money. People won't cheer for it. But boy, there's a payoff. Because those people who enjoyed the toys and used all the credit, you check them in five or ten years. You see how many of them are broke and you know, their marriages have dissolved or in a mess and they're at each other's throats and they're living with stress because they chose a lifestyle that they couldn't support. When Jesus taught, his favorite method of teaching was parables. And I truly believe that the strangest parable that Jesus ever told, I've, I've never heard anybody preach on it other than I, I preached on it one time. I've, I've never heard anybody else preach on it myself. 
is found in Luke chapter 16. I already had one of our small group leaders come up to him before the first service, and he pulled out his outline because he's going to be teaching a small group lesson this week. And he pointed to this passage and said, I've read this repeatedly. What is he talking about? What does this mean? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Yeah, it's that parable. Jesus said to his disciples, A rich man once had a manager to take care of his business. But he was told that the manager was wasting money, which he was. And he goes on to tell the parable about how this man who was his manager and who was wasting money realized he was going to get sacked. He was going to lose his job. And so he went out and he quickly made some financial adjustments. He did some things that were shady. He, he went around and said, hey, uh, Stuart, uh, you, you owe this much money. Let's cut that in half. And... Uh, uh, Tom, we'll, we'll take 20% off of what you owe my master here. And he did some shady things financially. And then when he got finished and his master came in to check on everything, he saw what the guy had done, and he didn't get mad. It's like he kind of chuckled and went, wow, that was actually pretty slick what he just did. Because he gained the favor of all of these people that he gave discounts to. It didn't cost him anything. It's costing the master something. And here's what Jesus ends up saying in his commentary on it. The master praised his dishonest manager for looking out for himself so well. That's how it is. The people of this world know how to look out for themselves better than the people who belong to the light. My disciples, I tell you, use wicked wealth to make friends for yourselves. If you cannot be trusted with this wicked wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? Okay, is that not a little bit weird? Does that not leave you scratching your head a little bit? What's Jesus' point? He's using a dishonest manager to make a point. He is not trying to say, so all of you, go be dishonest. That is not the point at all. However, it's a point of contrast and comparison. He's saying, you don't need to be like this dishonest manager. It's not that you need to be dishonest, but you should learn a lesson from him. He is a picture of people in the world, and he's saying, you need to get this. People in the world know how to use money. They know how to handle money. They use money in a way that is to their advantage. And he says, my followers don't get it. They are not shrewd. They are not good with money. And in that regard, he is saying, we ought to be more like the world in one regard. We stink at how we handle money. And here's one of those things. It doesn't sound spiritual, and it's a fact. Money is a huge part of the muscle of ministry. You can take a room full of people who have willing hearts and empty pocketbooks, and you won't change the world. It takes money to impact other people all over the world. You can impact your neighbor without any money, but you're not going to impact the world without financial resources. And Jesus is letting us in on the fact there is a financial component to changing the world. And he says, you guys need to catch on to this. Third principle, save money. Be sensible and store up precious treasures. Don't waste them like a fool. The contemporary English version of Proverbs 21. Store up precious treasure. Proverbs 13, 22 says... A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, <clears throat> but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. <clears throat> okay, how do you leave an inheritance for the next two generations behind you? I only know of one way. You've got to save something up. It's a scriptural principle to save. The wise man, the godly man or woman will leave an inheritance. He's talking about financial wealth here. 
to your kids, to your grandkids. So there really are three goals in saving that are just that are reasonable. This is the same stuff that you'd get from Crown and Financial Peace and all. First of all, it's wise to have a, an emergency fund, a rainy day fund. Everybody's going to have rainy days. How many of you have had a rainy day in the last 10 years? Most of us, boy. The last six years have given a big opportunity. It's going to rain in your life financially at some point. You lose a job, a hurricane comes, and you've got a 5% deductible on your house, and you've got major damage, major automobile accident. You have an, you know, an accident, and you're put out of work for a while. It comes in a lot of different forms. It's going to rain in your life someday. It's wise to have a fund that has prepared you for that. I mean, think about it this way. If you get thrown out of work, how different are these two situations? You have $20,000 in the bank in an emergency fund, and all of your debts are paid. You don't have a house note, car note, student loan, or any, any debt whatsoever. How different is that situation from the per person who's thrown out of the same job, and they have virtually nothing in the bank, and they have all of their debts? One person is freaked out, and the other person's going... Lost my job, but it's kind of an adventure to see what God's got next. Get to reinvent my life at this point. I mean, it's not like I'm going to lose a house or a car. Everything's paid for. This is what we're talking about. Moving to a place where you're going to have freedom and options. An emergency fund helps to, to do that. Most would suggest that a three- to six-month reserve is a sound emergency fund. I'm not there yet, but I'm working hard to have that, that fully funded. That's a sound thing for us to work toward. Secondly, save to be able to pay cash for what you purchase. It's really interesting. <clears throat> and a group of MIT researchers did a, a brain study that the results were published in uh, Carnegie Milan's uh, magazine. And in that, what they were studying in relation to activity in the brain was spending. And they were uh, comparing spending using cash versus people who use plastic. And so what they did is they hooked up all these electrodes and monitored what was going on when people would go out and spend money. And what they found was when people actually used paper money, real money, to pay for things, that it registers physical pain within the brain. How wild is that? I guess that shouldn't shock us a whole lot. I don't know about you, but uh, I found that I like Benjamin Franklin's a lot. And if I carry them in my wallet for very long, I just make them like part of the family. I mean, I just don't want to let them go. And what this study found is that most of us are that way, and we feel pain having to let go of money. They studied the exact same people spending the same amounts of money using plastic, a credit, or a debit card. No pain registered whatsoever in the brain. How interesting is that? We actually get something of a sense of pleasure out of spending when it didn't cost us any real money it's like it was Monopoly money when I can throw down that Visa card and just my signature and I can own it. If it hurts a little bit, we'll spend less. And if I have to pay cash, if I have a standard of if I can't pay for it in cash, I don't get it. I'm staying within my boundaries of not accumulating new debt. Not to mention, cash will allow you to get deals a lot of times. If you can, if you can flash a few Benjamins, when you're trying to make a deal and, and you just say, hey, I'll pay you cash if you'll hit this price, a lot of times you can save money doing that. The third thing, save to create wealth for future use. It is a foolish mindset that we would assume and plan on the government funding our retirement or us funding our retirement through Social Security. 
that is not a happy plan. That is not a happy retirement. Um, it, it never was the government's, I mean, it never should have been the government's job to take care of retirement for people. It should be our job to plan and take care of those things and to take care of those within our families. And I'm not going to camp on this because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but it doesn't take something extraordinary to be able to do that. As I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, if you picked a good mutual fund making over the life of the fund an average of 13%, if you put in $200 a month, $200 a month from age 25 to 40, and then you quit funding it at age 40 and you just left it till you were 65, you'd have over $2.2 million there just leaving it alone. Or if you put in $100 a month starting at age 30, you put it in a similar kind of mutual fund, put it in a Roth IRA, just you know, some kind of retirement plan, just leave it alone. $100 a month from 30 to age 70, you'd have over $1.1 million at $100 a month. That's your coffee and Coke money. There's probably hardly anybody in the room who couldn't find $100 a month. It's the, the effect of leaving it there and allowing interest to kick in over time. Fourth principle, though, is get out of debt. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. There's probably not three people in the room or listening online right now who have not borrowed major amounts of money to live the life that we live in America, and I would certainly be one of those people. And the Scripture is really clear in this, that it makes us a slave. It makes us a slave to money. It makes us a slave to those that we borrow from. And I just am determined to not live the rest of my life as a slave. I've lived so many years that way. I, you know, some of you can relate to this. When I was a younger adult, married man with very young kids, for the first time wanted to buy a house. Took out a 30-year mortgage on a house. And do you know why I did that? Because I couldn't get a 60-year mortgage. I think I'd have done a 60 if I could have gotten it. You know, it's just whatever it's going to take to get those payments down a little bit more. It's like, you know, when you look at the real numbers, you feel like you're going to pay $3 million in interest by the time you pay for this thing for 30 years. You live a little bit longer, you get a little bit wiser about this stuff, and you realize when you do more money, short, short term. I mean, 72 months on a car? Holy smoke. I mean, it's just it's crazy what we wind up paying in interest. Pay down debt. Pay it down quickly. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, You cannot be a slave to two masters. You will like one more than the other or be more loyal to one than to the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. You're a slave to the lender. You, you know, you may think, Oh, I'm not a slave to money because I don't have a lot of money. But the truth of the matter is a lot of us are slaves to money in the form of debt. In order to have the cars that we drive and the houses that we live in and the clothes we wear and all these things, we, we use debt to get there. And that makes you a slave faster than anything will. And do you know what that looks like when we talk in terms of being a slave? A slave doesn't get to just make choices for himself. A slave has a master who determines what choices he is going to get to make, what options really are options. And when you're in debt, you become just almost literally a slave because things that you look at and think, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. I'd, yeah, pastor, I'd love to be generous. 
I'd love to give to my church. I'd love to give to people in need. I'd love to help with this thing we're doing at Christmas. I'd love to give to feeding people. Man, that thing going on in Africa where so many people are getting saved, I would love to give toward that. And when I'm in a better place financially, I'll do that. But I can't right now. You know why I can't? Because, because I just felt the crack of my master's whip on my back. My master is debt. You see, I've got all these things that I owe on, and I, I have to pay those first. And there just doesn't right now happen to be anything left after I've done that. So don't look at my back, because you'd see the marks of, of me being a slave to that. That's why MasterCard is such an appropriate name. That wonderful card that gives me access to so many things. It is a MasterCard. You miss one payment and suddenly your interest rates are 24.99%. You can't be a person that has two masters. Jesus said it won't work. You can't be a slave to money and be a servant of the Lord Jesus. And I'll tell you one little thing about this. You search the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. You look for one time where God used debt to bless His people. It does not exist. There was never a time where debt was used as God's solution. Instead, debt is always tied to being a slave, being a fool, or being in bondage. You're never going to find a story where the Israelites were pinned down by the Amalekites and it looked really desperate right up until the moment that the charismatic leader of the Israelites decided to go out and take out a loan to save the day. It never happened. But how many times do we do that? We're in a bind because we're way behind. We've got to figure out how to how to solve this. And the solution is we'll go borrow more money. We'll use credit to get out of the bind. And that isn't a biblical solution. Working hard to get out of debt is key. It's really hard when you're in debt to be a saver, to be a giver, or even to be emotionally present with your family. You know what that feels like? Men, fathers, you know what that feels like to be so overwhelmed that even when you're with your family, you're just like, oh, just don't, nobody talk to me. Kids, don't mess with me. Wife, don't, don't mess with me right now because right now I am in, in mental financial crisis mode. Am I the only one who's ever been there? It's like, just, just don't even bump me. You know, I'm, I'm just, oh, I'm not at a good place right now because I know what a bind we're in and it's really probably her fault anyway. She did a better job with her end of handling the money. It's hard to do any of the other principles that we're talking about if debt is a big part of the equation. And I want you to consider this thought. What would it feel like if you were totally debt-free? No house note, no car note, no student loans, no credit cards you're paying off. Totally debt-free. What would that feel like? I, I know what that would feel like. It would feel like freedom, wouldn't it? You know why it would feel like freedom? Because we've been slaves for a long time and to not have debt anymore means you're no longer a slave to that. Your heart yearns for this. My heart yearns for this. I mean, wouldn't you sign up like this if you could be debt-free when you left here and went out to your car? Can't be there that quickly, but we need to be working a plan that gets us there. Forbes, their 400 list of the 400 wealthiest people in America, they were polled and 300 of the 400, 75%, said the number one principle to experiencing and continuing to enjoy wealth is that you have to get debt-free and stay debt-free. 
Number one key to having wealth. You've got to get out of debt and stay out of debt. That means you live your life only buying what you can pay for in cash. And it doesn't matter how much you're sick of your car or how much you love that dress or how much fun you'd have in that boat and how much family time that would create. If you can't pay for it in cash, you don't do it until you can. We having fun yet? Well, if you're not, we're fixing to get to the fun part. The fifth principle, give generously. We do the first four for the privilege of doing the fifth. God loves people who love to give. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. God loves a cheerful giver. There's nothing more fun that you will ever do with the money that God wants to lavish on you. You'll never have more fun than giving it away, blessing others with that. And God loves that. God loves for us to do that. Heard about somebody recently who went to Waffle House. And they were interacting with the waitress who was taking care of them. And along the way, found out a little bit of her story. Single mom, struggling. Believe it or not, she was not working at Waffle House because of the upward mobility and social connections that you make working at Waffle House. She was actually working there out of desperation, not because it was so much fun or her dream job in life. He was really moved by the desperate nature of her situation and, you know, how hard it was going to be to ever get ahead working at Waffle House. And so when they were finished and he went to pay the bill, the waitress had stepped away, he slipped in $500 as a tip and then scooted out the door and got in his car where she wouldn't see him and got to watch as the waitress came back to the table and took the money and saw that he had left 500 extra dollars. And he got to watch her do the happy dance. There's nothing that you spend money on for yourself that's as much fun as getting to inspire the happy dance. When we bless others, it blesses the heart of God. The scripture says, He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will always repay. That's as much fun as it gets right there. And I want to tell you, the reason that God wants to bless you and lavish good, good things on you, first of all, it's because he loves you. But secondly, it's because you represent him in the world. And he's not wanting to make you a rich, fat cat so that you can drive a luxury car and live in the biggest house that you could dream of and make everybody jealous. That is not his goal, and it's probably not his plan. He wants to lavish more on you so that you can just blow the doors off of other people, blessing them in ways that are just so unusual. But you can't do it when you're broke. Broke people don't get to leave $500 tips at Waffle House. You just don't. And if you're not willing to work the kind of plan that we're talking about, don't expect to ever be able to bless people like that. Because if you can't figure out how you're going to pay the rent and keep the lights turned on at your house this month, you're not going to bless the socks off of somebody else at Waffle House. It's just the way it works. Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of the UK, made a wonderful point when she said, no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he didn't have coin. Isn't that a fact? The Good Samaritan didn't come along and go, bless your heart. I'm going to pray for you. I hope you feel better. I'm going to pray that those boo-boos are all better when I come back through. No. He put the guy on his donkey, which was a sign of something other than poverty, that he had something for him to ride on. He carried him to an inn. And he pulled out his wallet and he paid for his expenses 
And he told the owner, whatever else this guy has in terms of expenses, I'm good for it. I will pay for it when I come back through. We remember the Good Samaritan because he was not only caring, but he was generous and he had the resources to do that. Some of us will fall in the trap of thinking, I, I really have a generous heart and God knows my heart. I don't have the resources right now to be generous, but one of these days God knows my heart. I'm going to have greater resources and then I'll be generous. You're lying to yourself if that's where you live. It doesn't work that way. If you're not sharing generously now, you don't have a generous heart. You have a deceived heart. And the scripture says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceptive. Who can know it? We'll deceive ourselves into thinking, I'm really a generous person. I just don't have the resources right now to be like outwardly generous. I'm just inwardly generous. There's another word for that. It's called a joke. Fiction. You can't say, okay, I'm going to... Pastor, I'm going to do the deal. I'm going to do the first four steps, and I'm going to kind of work them in order. I'm going to get a budget. I'm going to learn to live within my means. I'm going to, I'm going to start saving money. I'm going to pay down debt. When I get all those things done, I'm going to start giving. If that's your plan, tear up your outline, make a paper airplane out of it, make a grocery list on it, do whatever you want to do with it, but you can forget Anything that I've said today being any value to you if you're not going to practice the fifth principle. Because all the other four are wasted without the fifth one. God is generous to you so that you can be generous to others. And you can't wait to begin giving. Proverbs 3 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Don't you see the order in that? After you have consistently honored God with the first part of what you make. One of the most common questions I get asked when we talk about finances around the church. People want to know, should we tithe? I've got a simple answer. Yes. Tithing is a biblical concept. Everything we have comes from God. Everything still belongs to God. But there is a divine portion. It predates the law. It postdates the law. There is this portion that we don't get to mess around with. It all belongs to God, but the first tenth is God's in a unique way that God says, don't mess with this. You spend that tenth, the word tithe means a tenth, and he says, you're robbing me, and you will live in a place that Malachi 3 says is a place of cursing. Your productivity will go down. Read that passage in context. That's exactly what it's telling you. Don't mess with the first tenth. So, okay, is the tithe what you mean by generosity? Nope. The tithe is the beginning point of learning to be generous. When I make my budget, just reworked my budget recently. Felt like I got a raise when I was finished. It really it was such a cool feeling. Because as I worked through that carefully, realized, man, I've got more that I'm going to be able to apply to principal now to get rid of debt really quickly. Work in a five-year plan to be in such a better position. But it, it left me with a position to be able to give more. Always the beginning point. I'm going to tithe and give a, a free will offering to my local church. Beyond that, what other offerings am I going to give? Plan out that giving. And then there's just that offline giving. Just It's the waitress at the Waffle House. It's the guy on the sidewalk. It's the person that you randomly encounter when you're in a fast food place or whatever that God just says, there's an opportunity to just bless them. And by the way, don't wait for God to tell you like you have to do that. God doesn't give commands. God gives opportunities. 
He's trying to develop a generous heart in you. Don't sit back and go, well, you know, God didn't tell me to go help that homeless person, so I just, since he didn't tell me to, I didn't do it. God so many times is watching us going, I'm just waiting to see you act like a son or daughter of mine. I'm just waiting to see you have a heart that reflects my heart, that you see a need and go, if I see a need, that is God's invitation for me to go and be generous. And man, it's just a contagious thing. One opportunity just begets, begets a desire for another opportunity. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 9, God will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. Do you get what he's saying? It's such a wonderful principle. God's saying, I want so badly to just blow you away with how much I give you in terms of resources. But there's a stipulation. You can't let much of it stick to you. I want to so enlarge the level of resources that I pour out on you. But he's saying, I'm not going to do it until I can see that you are faithful in sharing what I give you with other people because I'm not giving it to you so that you can just keep raising your standard of living. I'm pouring it on you because you're just a wonderful conduit that wherever you go, you encounter people with needs and you go, oh yeah, let's, let's address that in Jesus' name. Let's bless this person in Jesus' name. Wow, there are places where this amount of money that I actually have control over could change an entire village. There's a whole region of a country. They could have clean water for the first time in their lives and I could supply that for the rest of their lives for $5,000. I could do that. I mean, it's crazy what you could begin to do when you begin to see what the level of resources that we control could do in third world countries. And when we begin to think like that and function like that, God just says, you can't begin to dream or imagine what I'd be willing to pour out on you when you'll just let that flow through you to other people. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. He concludes by saying, But since you excel in everything, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. We do the first four for the privilege of doing the fifth one. They're all necessary. They're all critically important. If you only had the energy and attention to focus on two things today, if you needed a starting point, start with the first and the last. You've got to have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you're not going to make changes. And if you don't commit it to, to writing, there's going to be no accountability. You won't stick with it and follow through it. In your small groups this week, go to small group this week. You're going to actually take some time. You're going to have budget worksheets, all the different categories where all you're going to do is fill in your numbers. You're not going to share it. Nobody else is going to see it or know it. It's just going to help you in the exercise of getting this on writing you know, on paper, in writing, in front of you, doing that discipline and making sure that at the top of the list and at the top of your spending that you're learning to be generous. And you know what? If you don't have a generous spirit at all, if right now it's like I'm going to learn to give as I pry one finger at a time off of this money, if that's where you are, start with the tithe. Start with just that simple thing. Okay, I'm going to put that at the top of my list. And God, you said we could test you in this. I'm going to begin to do that. But I'm going to ask you, God, to develop in me a generous heart. 
I'm going to budget in here money that's not going to be spent on me, that's going to be given to other people or to other ministries, and I'm just going to look for opportunities to give that away. You try it and see if God doesn't bless your socks off in doing that and increase your ability to do that even more. A wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You're impacting the generation behind you and the generation behind them. You are. The question is, are you impacting them with an example of financial bondage and greed? Or are you impacting them in a way that you're actually leaving a legacy of generosity? That you're actually leaving wealth and a, and a model of loving Christ and loving the world in a way that man, you're abundantly provided for and you provide for the needs of others. You're leaving a legacy for the future generations. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer right now? Father, we are so grateful for the ways that you provide for us and you lavish on us so much more than we deserve. We thank you that you are God, our provider. Lord, our confidence is not in our plans. It's not in our bank accounts or our retirement accounts. Our hope and our confidence is in you. But Lord, we confess to you that in so many ways we have lived comfortable, American, cushy lives where we have spent so much more on ourselves than many times has been appropriate. We've lived as fools, so many of us. We ask you to forgive us and to help us make real lasting change. Lord, where your word speaks, we want to obey. We want to say yes to every command and every bit of wisdom in your word. And your word speaks to us. Lord Jesus, you spoke so much to the issue of money, wealth, resources. Help us, please, to make changes, to truly be both good stewards and just ridiculously generous people that reflect your character to the world. I want to ask you today, if you're at a place that you know that you really do need a fresh start, that what we've talked about today really applies to you, that you need to begin to apply these principles because you have lived foolishly and it's time for a change, I want to just ask you to raise your hand as a way of saying, God, I want your help, but I am making a commitment. I want to put these principles into practice. Folks all around the room, Father, I ask you today, take notice of the lives that are speaking up here today with a raised hand saying, I want to make a change. God, I pray that you would give staying power to these commitments. And I'm asking you today, Lord Jesus, would you cause your blessing, your favor to rest on each of these men and women, on each of these families and households represented? Make of us generous people. Help us to be responsible Help us to get out of debt. Help us, Lord, to, to be the kind of people who are in a position to help those around us. Lord, continue to root out greed in us. Recreate your character in us. As your word said in Jeremiah 31, Lord, rebuild us. You have promised us, rebuild us so that we truly are rebuilt. Take hearts that have been greedy. Take hearts that have been foolish and make of us faithful sons and daughters. For your glory, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.